Let's begin again with this word from Romans 8:35, the word of the Lord. Does it mean that God no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this idea of forgiving God. And in case you are here today for the first time, let me catch you up real quick. No one here is saying that God did anything wrong. But my guess is that at some point in your journey, if your journey is like my journey, if your journey is like most people's journey, that at some point in your life, something didn't go the way you thought it should go. Maybe some prayer went unanswered. Or maybe life hasn't lived up to your expectations. Or maybe when you needed God most, you felt like he was nowhere to be found. And ever since that day, ever since whatever happened, happened, you would say that ever since that moment in time, your relationship with God just hasn't been the same. Things between you and God have not been the way they once were. In fact, there is a a distance between you and God. So the whole idea that we're talking about during these weeks is what if you could forgive God? And what we mean by that is what if you could release God from whatever it is you're holding against him, whatever hurt, whatever pain, whatever resentment, whatever happened, so that that you could enter back into full relationship with your heavenly Father who loves you more than you could possibly know. What if that could happen for you today. In 1972, uh, this book was published by Judith Yorst. Uh, You probably know this story. It's been a pretty famous book called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Anybody ever had a day like this? If Yeah, everybody. Raise your hand. You can't lie in church. That's, you know, a sin. But anyway, I guess it's a sin no matter where you are in church. It's like twice. I don't know. We'll talk about that later. Off subject. Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. You, even if you don't know the story, you know how this story goes. It's a story about a kid who wakes up. And from the moment he wakes up to the time he goes to bed that night, everything that can go wrong does go wrong for Alexander. And I know that it's true. I know it's true for you. It's true for me. Some of you, you've had days like that. Some of you, that's the way today is going. Like you walked in the door and you're just glad to get here because from the moment you woke up to the moment you came in, it seemed like everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The truth is some of you haven't just had a day like that. Some of you've had a week like that. Some of you've had a month like that. Some of you've had years like that where it seems like everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Wrong, And it raises this age-old question that we've been asking for hundreds and thousands of years. And you know this question. You've asked this question. Why? Why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why? Why do fires rage in California, consuming the homes and lives and possessions of so many people? Some people we know, some people like some of you know, Madeline, who is a part of our faith family who lives out there. And yeah, she's lost everything. Just so you know, she's doing well. She's in good spirits, but she's going to have to replace like 99% of her material possessions. And if you know Madeline, you know she's a good person. Why, Why did this happen to her? Why is this happening to so many people out there? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is it that a gunman walks into the 
uh, the, the, the borderline bar and grill there in Thousand Oaks, California, an open fire. Why is it that 12 people have to die? 12 people who went there that night to have a good time with their friends, not knowing it would be their last night. Why do we live in a world where this kind of stuff happens? Why do bad things happen to good people? And no doubt you've asked this question when, when things like this have happened in your life or happened to the people you know, the people you love, people in your family. But you ask this question most, don't you, when it happens to you. And you're wondering, we're wondering, why is it? Why is it that everything that can go wrong does go wrong? And why is it that when we're trying to do everything right, it seems like it doesn't even matter? Why is it that when we're trying to live life the right way and do life the right way and do things the right way, we're showing up at church, we're taking care of our kids, we're loving our family, we're, we're, we're doing all the right things at work, and still everything that can go wrong does go wrong? Why is it that when we're, we're trying to be good stewards of our money and the resources that, that God has given us and we're, we're taking care of, of, of all those things that are important and we're giving to our church, it seems like still even in those days... Everything that can break does break. Been there, the house is falling apart, your car won't start, the appliances broke again, and it's like you just can't get ahead. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. Why is it that, that you're trying to give your kids uh, you know, the, the life that you never had, to, to, to give them all the opportunities that you never had, but it seems like the more you do for them, it seems like the more distance you feel from them. Why is it? How about this? You ever been there when you studied for the test and you, you put in the work, you stayed up late, and you get there and you take the test, but it seems like the things you studied are not the questions that are on the test. And you put in the work, but you showed up that day and it didn't matter. Have you ever been there? That happened at our house this week. Why is it that you're trying to do all the right things? And you're trying to provide for your family. And you love your spouse. But here lately, it feels like you're just ships passing in the night. And the only communication you have is like mission critical stuff. It's like who's going to get what kid to what place at what time and how are we going to make life work today? And you really can't remember the last time you had a real conversation with your spouse. And you love them and you pledge to love them till the day that you die. But right now, there's a gap in your relationship and you don't even know how to close that gap with the one person you love more than anyone else in the world. And it seems like everything you say communicates the opposite of that truth. Why is it that bad things happen to good people? Why is it that sometimes, even when you're trying to do all the right things, everything that can go wrong does go wrong? And oh, by the way, where is God? Where, where is he when you need him most? And those of us who are people of faith, like we have this verse memorized, we, we say this verse all the time, that if God is for us, who can be against us? But let's be honest, it feels like God is not for us right now because nothing seems to go our way. And if the truth were to be told, we just need a break, a rest, a reprieve from the chaos, from the storm that is raging against us. If you've ever asked that question, if you're asking that question today, let me just give you a little bit of hope. This is a question that people, and even people of faith, have been asking for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. It's a real question, and there's real tension around it. And if you've been around the last couple of weeks, you know what we're not going to do. We're not going to give you a bumper sticker answer to one of life's 
hardest questions, but we are going to go back to the Word of God and maybe see if there's some truths there to help you, to help me, to help us as people of faith walk through these days when it seems like everything that can go wrong does go wrong. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 37. I think as I was thinking about, you know, there's so many people throughout the story of Scripture who just did not have it easy. And that should be a comfort to you. If you're trying to follow God, if you're trying to follow Jesus, you need to know that almost every story of every person that ever tried to walk this walk had a difficult time. So the task before us is not one that has not been walked before. But Joseph is one of those people who had a life where it seemed like everything that could go wrong, it just went wrong over and over again. Joseph, we're talking about Joseph. This is not, I know this is the time of year when we're going to start talking about Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus. This Joseph is not that Joseph. This Joseph lived thousands of years before that Joseph. This Joseph lived in Israel before it was called Israel. He lived in the land of Canaan, in ancient Israel. And he was the youngest of 11 brothers at the time when he was born. He was born to his father, Jacob. And if you have your Bibles or the Bible app in Genesis 37, we'll start with verses 3 and 4 where Scripture says this. Jacob, that's the dad, loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. Now, a quick bit of parenting advice. I'm not an expert parent, but I think I got this one. Parents, don't pick a favorite kid. (laughs) And if you do, don't tell your kids that you've picked a favorite kid. Just tell all your kids they're your favorite kid, and one day they'll figure it out, and that'll be fine, but they will know that there were no favorites, and if there were, they didn't know what they were. I mean, I would never tell Will and Emma that Ella Grace is my favorite. I wouldn't do that, and you shouldn't either. I'm just kidding. I'm going to hear about that one. (laughs) Jacob loved Joseph more than his brothers. And you know how this went for him. It didn't go well for him or for Jacob. One day, Jacob, his dad, the father, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. You may have heard this story, the coat of many colors. We don't know if it was a coat of many colors, but it was a beautiful robe, ornate, expensive, special made for Joseph by Jacob or, or at his request. But his brothers hated Joseph Because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't even get this. You may want to underline this. This shows you how deep the resentment and the hate was inside their bones. They couldn't even say a nice word to him. Literally, they couldn't say shalom to him. This was the ancient Hebrew greeting. When I see you and you see me, I say shalom. You say shalom back. This means peace. This means wholeness. This means the fullness of life. This means I'm wishing on you all the goodness that I wish on you, the life the way it's supposed to be. They couldn't say that to their brother Joseph. They hated him so much. And had Joseph done anything wrong to deserve this? What had he done at this point? He'd just been born. He'd been born to his dad, and his dad was older. He'd also been born to his dad's favorite wife. There are some other issues we could talk about later. But you see, Jacob's got problems with favoritism and all this other stuff. Joseph hasn't done anything wrong, though, but his brothers literally hate his guts. And then Joseph grows up. 17 years old, and he has this gift. He's got this ability uh, to dream and also to interpret those dreams. So he has these dreams when he's 17 years old, and and what the dreams mean is that one day his brothers and family will, will come and they will bow down before him. And if Joseph did anything wrong, maybe it was this, because he shared that information with his brothers, and I don't know that that was the wisest move, but again, he's 17 years old, so what do you expect, right? 17 years old, he tells his brothers, I've had a dream from God, a vision from God, that one day all of you will bow down to me. Well, guess what? This did not make his family situation any better. 
his brothers continued to hate his guts. One day, his brothers were off taking care of the sheep, his dad's sheep. And dad, Jacob says to Joseph, hey, go check on your brothers. Worst idea ever. Jacob packs a bag, begins the journey to go check on his brothers where they're keeping the sheep, finally finds them. When his brothers see Joseph coming down the path towards them, they realize we have a golden opportunity. And they begin making a plan to kill their brother, Joseph. Now, had Joseph done anything at this point in the story to deserve death? No. Maybe a little resentment for dreams he'd had and the way he had interpreted those dreams, but certainly nothing worthy of death. But his brothers see him coming down the road, and they're like, hey, this is our chance. Let's kill Joseph. Why? Because Joseph had something that they wanted so desperately and they never could get. They had, Joseph had, their father's attention and affection. And they thought, maybe, just maybe, if we can get rid of Joseph, maybe, just maybe, our father will favor us for a change. Thankfully for Joseph, one of his brothers, Reuben, was like, we can't kill our brother. Like, that's wrong. So what he says to the brothers, Reuben says, hey, guys, don't kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit. He'll die of natural causes. He'll starve to death. He'll, you know, maybe a wild animal will come down and eat him, but we don't have to kill him. Let's just put him in a pit and he'll die. Reuben's thinking the whole time, I'll come back later. I'll rescue him and I'll help him escape. I'll get him out of here, but we can't kill our brother. All the brothers think that's a great idea. We'll just throw him in a pit. Even better. Don't have to get our hands dirty. Reuben walks off, and guess what happens? Judah comes, another brother, and he says, Hey, I got an even better idea. We got Joseph in the pit, but what good is he if he's dead? And I want you to just see what, what Judah said. You're going to be really glad you weren't born into this family. In verse 26 and 27, Judah said this, What will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime instead of hurting him. Let's, I got a great idea. Let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders over there. What if we can get rid of Joseph and get rich at the same time? Brilliant. What has Joseph done to deserve any of this? Nothing. But his brothers have taken him. They've bound him. They've thrown him in a pit. And now they're preparing to sell him off to these Ishmaelite traders. You know what's missing in this entire story? This is fascinating. You read the story of Genesis, you read story after story of what's happened in the ancient world, and almost in every page there's the presence of God, there's the name of God, you see God involved, but you get to the story of Joseph, and you get to chapter 37 of Genesis, and God is nowhere to be found. He's literally absent from the story. Where is Joseph when he has these dreams, and he tells his family, one day you're going to bow down to me. Where is God when he's walking down the road and his brothers start making a plan to kill him? Where is God when they capture him and throw him in a pit? Where is God when Joseph is at the bottom of the pit? Where is God when he's sold to Ishmaelite traders? Where is God when they bound him and they, they carry him off to Egypt, to a, a foreign land? Where is God You can read the story. You can read all the verses in chapter 37. There's no mention of God. He's nowhere to be found. He's absent. He's invisible. And meanwhile, Joseph is suffering one disaster after another. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the life that Joseph 
had planned. This is not the way he thought his life would, would turn out. As far as his father knows, he's dead. And now Joseph is in a foreign land, not knowing what's going to happen next. The story's not over. The good news is that Joseph seems, at every point in the story, to make the best of his unfortunate circumstances. And it doesn't take long. Uh, Joseph winds up in Egypt, and he's bought by an Egyptian named Potiphar. And very quickly, Joseph seems to rise in this new situation in Potiphar's house. And when you get to chapter 39, verse 2, you see something in Joseph's story you haven't seen until now. Chapter 39, verse 2, you read these words. The Lord was with Joseph. There he is. And what's God doing? This is the first time he's appeared in Joseph's story. Is he, is he here to protect Joseph from whatever's going to happen next? Is he going to keep him from any more pain and suffering? No. But he is with Joseph. And it's God's withness that sustains Joseph through every difficulty that comes his way. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. And this pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. Joseph is is rising in the ranks in Potiphar's house. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. And you might be thinking, awesome, (laughs) good for Joseph. Finally, something is going his way, except the story isn't over. Joseph caught the eye of his master Potiphar, but he also caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. And in verse 6, we find this out. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded, but Joseph refused. Verse 10, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but, but he refused to sleep with her. And he knew out of, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around. Most people think that she sent everybody out of the house when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, Come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away. But he left his cloak in her hand as, she, as he ran from the house. And you can imagine what happened next. Potiphar's wife screams. All the attendants come rushing in. Potiphar is summoned. Joseph is standing there, his cloak in the hand of Potiphar's wife, and she cries rape. Potiphar's furious, and Joseph ends up back in a pit, back in prison, for crimes he didn't commit. Why do bad things happen to good people? And where is God when it seems like everything that can go wrong does go wrong? You know what Joseph doesn't do? You read the story and you see it over and over again. Every time something negative, something bad, something disastrous, something unbelievable happens to Joseph through no fault of his own. You know what Joseph never seems to do? 
He never seems to blame God. He never seems to turn away from God. He never seems to get angry at God. Maybe he did, but we don't see it in the story revealed. At no point in the story does it seem like Joseph blames God for his circumstances. And and I think maybe what Joseph, or at least the story of Joseph, is trying to point us to is that when hardship, when pain, when suffering, when difficulty, when everything that can go wrong does go wrong in your life, you have a choice. You can either blame God, and that's one way to go. You can yell at God. You can get angry at God. You can be mad at God. And oh, by the way, if it happens to you, if that's where you are now, if you've been there in the past, let me just go ahead and tell you, that's okay. If you keep reading the scriptures, you'll come to the book of Psalms, the song song book of the Old Testament, and you'll see there many, many songs, and their heart cries out to God, people of faith saying, where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? How long, O Lord? These songs, these psalms, these are okay to pray. It's okay to blame God. It's okay to be angry at God. God is big enough to handle your anger. It's okay to go there. It's not okay to stay there. You can blame God. Or like Joseph, in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your suffering, you can point other people to God. This is what Joseph did. Over and over again, whenever Joseph found himself in a pit, he seemed to point other people to God. Even even at this point in the story, when he's in prison for a crime he didn't commit, there's other people there in the prison with him, and he finds ways to serve them and take care of them. And then, as the story goes, they end up having dreams of their own. And Joseph says, hey, I I can help you with that. Actually, actually my God can help you with that, and and he can interpret your dreams for you. If you want me to, we can do that. And he does. He serves them. He points them to God and the story, and you can do that too. And I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, whenever you've been with people who are in the middle of life's most difficult pain, whenever you've been with people of faith who are in life's most difficult moments of pain, the one truth that always comes to the top is this. I don't know how people who don't have God and who don't have the people of God walk through days like these. I don't know. We can be mad at God all we want, but I don't know how people who don't have God and don't have the people of God in their life wake up the next morning and put one foot in front of the other. Lisa Turkhurst, in her new book called It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, asked this incredible question. She says, what if God's not picking on you? What if God's picking you? What if he's choosing you? What if he's choosing you to be faithful to him in the middle of your pain and suffering? What if, like Joseph, there's people who will never come to know the only God who saves unless they experience him revealed in your faithfulness to him in the middle of your pain and suffering? What if there's people who will never come to their own deep faith and knowledge of Jesus until they see how tightly you're holding on to him in the middle of whatever difficulty or tragedy or storm you're walking through? What if God isn't picking on you? What if God wasn't picking on Joseph? What if he picked him? What if God is choosing you to be faithful to him in the middle of the storm so that more and more people can come to know that there is a God? And when you walk through those days, you can tell them 
I don't know where God is, but I know he's near. And I know he's with me. And I don't know how people who don't know God, and I don't know how people who don't know the people of God make it through these days. Some of you have asked, Alicia and I just got back from a trip to Israel, and I wish I had time to stand up here and tell you all the stories and show you all the pictures. This week I put all the pictures in one file. There's over 1,400 pictures of our, of our journey. Let me show you just a couple of quick pictures. On the last day we went, or the last couple of days, we were in Jerusalem. And we got to go to two different sites that tell the same story. The first, you'll see this. We went to the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre. And this is inside the current city of Jerusalem. It would have been outside the ancient city walls. And this is the site where living tradition says that Jesus was taken and buried. And oh, by the way, where he resurrected. And if you go to that site today like we did, what will happen when you go inside this building that has been built around this ancient tomb is you'll stand in line for many, many, many hours. And at some point, you'll get to walk into the tomb and you'll get to see with your own eyes that, in fact, it is empty. And what amazed me about this is that there are people from all over the world, from all different kinds of faith, who have come to line up and to see this site, to see where this man was killed, where he died, and where he was buried, and where he rose again. Then we took a journey outside the current city walls to what they call the garden tomb. This place more closely matches the details in the gospel story of where Jesus was crucified, where he was, was buried, and where he was resurrected. You can go there and you can see a hill that looks like Golgotha. You can actually see the imprint of the face of a skull and the way the, the rock, the limestone is shaped there. And it's pretty amazing to see that and be like, oh yeah, that, that really could have been it. And, and you're there in a garden and there is a garden tomb that is cut out of a rock. And, and you can stand in line. We stood in this line and you can walk in that tomb and you can go in that tomb and you can find out that, yeah, guess what? It's empty. The good news is, whichever tomb it was, it's empty, okay? That's the good news. <laughs> he is not there. He is risen. Can I get an Amen. I'm the only one that's excited about that. That's okay. And again, it amazed me that here at this garden tomb, there's people lined up, standing in line, waiting their turn to go in. From different parts of the world, speaking different languages, coming from different faith backgrounds and traditions, different color skin, different everything, and they're walking in to see. We ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? How about this question? Why, why, why do bad things happen to perfect people? Why was Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, why was he betrayed? What had he done that was wrong? Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life. And they came by night with torches to arrest him. They bound him. They put him through a sham of a trial. They brought false accusation after false accusation against him and finally found some ground, shaky grounds as they were, to convict him and condemn him to die. He was taken. He was tied to a pole. He was beaten within an inch of his life with a cat of nine tails, then made to carry a cross to the streets of Jerusalem. And I've walked those streets, and I'm here to tell you, whichever way you go, it is uphill. And they got to Golgotha, and they laid him on that cross. They put nails in his hands, and they dropped that cross in a socket in the ground. And then Jesus cried out these words, Why have you abandoned me?
Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did this happen to the only perfect person who ever lived? I think people walk into those tombs. I think they travel thousands of miles and wait in long lines. And they may not be able to say it this way, but I think part of it is they're standing in there to see. Is there hope? Is there hope for me? I'm not trying to give you bumper sticker answers to life's hardest questions. I don't know why bad things happen to good people. I don't know why bad things are happening to you. But I believe this was true for Joseph. I think this was true for Jesus. And I believe this is true for you too. That whatever you're going through, whatever difficulty you're facing, whatever tragedy you're up under, whatever pain you're enduring, whatever storm that is raging, Whatever it is that you're not sure you can stand up under one more day, God sees. He sees. And God knows. He knows. And God cares. He cares so deeply. And God is working. And yes, it is often in invisible ways. I get that. But He is working. He is working for your good and for his ultimate glory. You know how the story of Jesus ends. Let me tell you the story of Joseph. God's favor continued over his life in every pit he wound up in. Pharaoh had his own dreams, needed somebody to interpret those dreams, and he found out this Hebrew in prison had this ability And God revealed to Joseph the meaning of Pharaoh's dreams. There's going to be seven good years, followed by seven years of severe famine. Pharaoh was so impressed with this Hebrew prisoner that he made him second in command of all of Egypt. Over the next seven years, Joseph did what God told him to do. He he was a good steward of, of the land of Egypt, and he prepared and stored up food and grain for the famine that was coming that nobody else knew was coming, but Joseph knew. Sure enough, seven years later, the rain stopped, the crops died, and there was a severe famine over the land. But Joseph had been attentive to God and faithful to God. Because of that, through Joseph, There was bread that gave life to a whole generation. And not to just a generation. Do you know who else needed food? His brothers. And his brothers actually came to Egypt looking for food, and they had no idea what they would find. The same brother they threw in the pit was the only one who could help them out of the pit they were in. In Genesis Genesis chapter 41, verse 57, Scripture says this, people from all around came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. 
because the famine was severe throughout the world. When his brother showed up, this could have gone a lot of different ways. And there's a longer story here, but I'll tell you how it ends. In Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph, standing before his brothers, said these words. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And one day, another deliverer would come out of Egypt, the living bread of life, and what the world meant for harm, the cross God intended for good to save many lives. And you and I are present this morning because of that bread of life, because of that deliverer, because of Jesus. And whatever pain you're going through, like Joseph, whatever suffering you're up under, like Jesus, God can use to accomplish his purposes if you will let him. And the truth is, you never know what hangs in the balance of your faithfulness to God in the middle of your pain. Church, can we stand together? Why do bad things happen to good people? I've already told you, I really don't know the answer. But maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the better question is, will we give up on God? Will we give up on the God who is, despite all of our failings, despite all the times we didn't show up, despite all the times we didn't meet his expectations, despite all the times we've fallen short of his glory, despite all the failings and things we've done wrong in our own lives, will we give up on the God who has never given up on us? Will we be unfaithful to the one who has always been faithful to us? What if we didn't? What if we were faithful? What if this is what was different about us? At Riverside, we're striving to live different, but I'll be honest, we can't live different if we're holding on to past hurt. So what if this is what is different about us? What if we made the decision to be faithful to the one who has always been faithful to us? Listen, I know this is a tough conversation, and I'm so glad we're at a church where we can have, have these conversations. Uh, if you're going through a difficult time, our elders and their wives, they've already made their way around the room because they know that some of you might need a word and encouragement or maybe someone to pray over them. They don't have all the answers either, but they're more than willing to pray over you and encourage you today. If you need that, I would ask you to go to them and allow them to help you in that way. For the rest of us, I pray. I pray that this week you will hold on to the God who is holding on 